Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke in the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates, like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. We come now to Revelation chapter 9 and to the trumpet judgments. We've not gone through, chapter 9 deals particularly with the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments. We've not really gone through the previous three trumpet judgments in any detail. And again, I think we need to guard against uh, uncertain or controversial interpretations on the specifics of the prophecy of Revelation. But we are on far safer ground when we can see the broad contours, the big trajectories of where all these things are going. And it's hard to ignore that when you look at these trumpet judgments, they seem to have something in common with a previous set of judgments in history and that's with the plagues in Exodus you see these similar things water becoming blood locusts destroying the earth a terrible hailstorm and darkness and death 
Now, if that's the parallel, if that's the big picture of what these trumpet judgments are pointing to, if that's the sort of thing that the Lord is doing, where are these plagues going? What is the effect that God has for these things? And the answer, I would think, would have to be, well, what was God doing in Egypt at this point? Well, the ultimate purpose is, there are two of them, first of all, was to glorify God. And we can't lose sight of that in any of the things that we see, past, present, or future. Anything that has ever happened, everything that is happening right now, and all the things that lie in the future, they are to glorify God. We cannot forget that. And then also, these plagues in Egypt were to humble and to judge man. You have to consider this situation. Again, the pharaoh of Egypt is this great uh, and powerful, almost godlike figure, leading the great superpower of the, the world, by far the most powerful at that time, lifted up in pride, and the whole nation with him, and God demonstrating his sovereign power to judge and to bring them to account, to humble them. And these are the things that the Lord says he was doing in these plagues, doing in the work of the Exodus, of bringing his people out. Yes, he was accomplishing salvation for his own people, and yes, that's what, what we, exactly what we find in Revelation. But in the process of that, he was bringing, to, bringing low those who were puffed up in pride against him and bringing them to account. Well, I think these very same things are in effect here in Revelation chapter 9. Now, evidently, the elect of God, the, those who are going to come to saving faith in Christ Jesus, have already been sealed. You know that uh, just... Going back a couple chapters to chapter 7, you have the sealing of the people of God. The 144,000, not a, a literal number, but rather pointing to the absolute completeness and perfection of that number, known only to God. And then immediately thereafter, that being expanded to say, actually, it's an untold number. It's like the, the stars in the sky or the, the sand on the seashore. It's a number that no one can number because of the greatness and mercy of God. And the thing is, though, that the angels who are to destroy this earth and all the people on it are said, don't do anything until we have sealed the servants of God. And that's the process that this world is, on, is going under right now. Uh, the world is being kept from destruction another day because there's somewhere in this world, somewhere, someone is, is marked out for salvation and they're going to come to faith before that happens. They're going to be saved. And no one's going to be lost of those that God intends to save. Well, eventually that process is going to come to an end. And we think that's what has happened here as these trumpet judgments are poured out. The process has come to an end. And now these angels, these destroying angels, are given free reign to do exactly what they have been set out to do and to bring this judgment now, what then is the purpose of these things? Well, I think it's the purpose that we had in Exodus, isn't it? To glorify God and to humble and to judge man. I wonder, by the way, as we're thinking of this, I wonder if these men who are persecuting the church, and you know that the context of Revelation is so much a persecution of God's people in, in various ways. That's what these letters to the seven churches mainly highlight. Not all of them were experiencing persecution. Some of them were so compromised that they didn't even taste what persecution was like. But for most of them, they were faithful enough to know that, to have experienced that persecution. And I wonder if these godless men who persecute the church, I wonder if they ever realized that it was for the very sake of those that they hate and persecute that they are being kept another day 
from this terrible destruction and judgment upon them. This fate, quite literally, worse than death, as we find out. Well, these judgments are happening. They are a foretaste of the complete and total judgment that is yet to come. And the most strange, the strangest thing, the thing that is most striking to me, is yet they did not repent. That's the strange thing. That's the thing that calls out for an explanation in, in this passage more than the rest of it. Yet they did not repent. What, what do we see in these things? Well, we see great blindness, certainly. We see the spiritual darkness, which is part of the picture of what's been one of the great judgments here is that the sun has been darkened, that darkness is covering the face of the earth. And you see this great spiritual darkness as well. You, you see them reacting to this foretaste of judgment, not in a spiritual way, but rather simply by wanting to seek death. And in the end, no matter how terrible these things are, no matter how clear the message for them might be, the writing is on the wall for them. But just as it was in Daniel chapter 5, which has also some parallels with this, this wicked man, even though the writing is so clearly on the wall, the destruction so written out and given to him, yet he does not repent. And so it is here. It makes us wonder a little bit more about these things. Well, let's consider them. If you consider the nature of the trumpet judgment, I guess that would be the, the theme or the title of this, this sermon, the nature of the trumpet judgments. And these three points, spiritual darkness, seeking death, and they still did not repent. Spiritual darkness, seeking death, and they still did not repent. Beginning with the first point of this spiritual darkness. Now we've already had that in Revelation 8 in verse 12. It says, And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now, anywhere you look in Scripture, and you don't have to be a genius to figure this out anyways, if you, even if you'd never opened the Bible, you'd probably have an idea that enforced dar- unnatural darkness is uh, a judgment, is a problem. But if you do look at Scripture, you know all the more, uh, all the more clearly that whenever the Lord is speaking of judgment, darkness is part of it. Again, that's part of the situation in Exodus. That's even the situation on the cross. Darkness covered the earth. And where, who's the judgment being poured out? Well, the judgment is actually, in this case, being poured out on Christ for our sake, for God's people's sake. Well, here the judgment is on the unrepentant sinners of the world, and darkness is part of that judgment. Now, darkness but works both ways. Not only is it an immediate judgment, but it also speaks, in the other sense, of withholding of light. You see, one of the greatest, and people don't give sufficient attention to that, but one of the greatest blessings of the current situation, sometimes people think this, this world is pretty much like a hell, but it's not. One of the greatest reasons why that is not the case is because this sound is going out, right? The sound from this book is being put into preaching and is being heard by people on this earth right now, all over the world. The sound of the bride, which is 
uh, which is the church, and of the bridegroom, who is Christ, is being heard even now. And as long as that sound is being heard, as long as that light, the spiritual light that comes from it, is being seen, then there remains great hope that people may see in the light, they may understand themselves to be sinners, to repent, and they might see the glorious gospel of faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. It's a wonderful blessing. Now, surely then, one of the worst things that could happen is that darkness would cover the earth and the light of the truth of the gospel would no longer go forth. Well, that would seem to be what's going on here, so that there's both physical and spiritual darkness. So not only in Revelation 8.12, but also in 9 verses 1 to 3. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And speaking of hell, he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And you see this terrible picture of the great darkness of hell now spilling out onto the earth. Again, there is so much terrible in, in hell. Everything imaginable, physically, spiritually, psychologically, everything that you could be imagined, that sort of terrible thing, that's, that's in hell. And certainly, it's the withholding of light. It's the imposition of darkness. And now this darkness is spilling out, as it were, onto the earth. It's a terrible curse. Now, you know, again, that throughout John, and a great context for understanding Revelation is the Gospel of John, light is this great blessing. You remember, long ago, prophesied in Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And in the prologue of John, the light shines in the darkness, is speaking of Jesus Christ. Who is this man who's come? He's the one who is shining in the darkness, though the darkness did not comprehend it. In this time of the gospel then, from the resurrection of Christ until the end comes, is a time of great light. And is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Now, how we would, how, how sad we are that we do not, uh, because of our own sinfulness and rebellion and the people around us, we don't see more the effects of this light, but it's there. If we look at the broad contours of history, we see this light on the world and all of its effects. And maybe we personally see the wonderful power of the light of the, of the gospel reaching us and making us to be also living in light but we know in John 3.19 that this is the condemnation that light has come into the world but at men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil men love darkness even though light is here now for a moment there remains that tension evil rebellious men they don't want the light yet light has come and light remains and that's why the great work of, the, of rebellious, wicked men in this world is to try to get rid of the light, is to try to persecute the church for continually sending out this light which they hate because their deeds are wicked. But eventually, eventually, they're in, in some way given their way and the light is removed, darkness covers the earth and of course the judgment then 
is more and more complete. So that's first the darkness that comes in these trumpet judgments as the end is very near. And secondly, we see with this terrible idea of seeking death but not finding it. We read in verse 4, They were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. We don't know of particularly any more terrible words in the Bible than this notion of men who are seeking death because of how terrible these torments are, yet it flees from them. They are not allowed to die. Now first, we have to see again the mercy of God in these things, because even in the worst of judgments, we always find some element somewhere, some pointing to the great mercy of God. And here it's very clear, it's because it's only those who do not have the seal of God. Now what is the seal of God? Some sort of secret, special thing that we have no idea what it might be? No, it's very clear. As we've seen already, it's the Holy Spirit. It's that we've been washed in the blood of Christ. How do you get that? It's very easy. Put your faith in Christ and you'll be saved. And you'll have this thing as well. All you have to do is trust it. He's handing out this seal. The seal is being issued. And if you want the seal, then take it. It's yours by faith. And once you have this seal on you, then you can be sure that these torments are not for you. That God is very selective and very just, and this will not happen to any of his people, but for only those who remain in their sin. Now again, this is the larger trajectory of the book, the great trajectory of human history, that the elect of God are being sealed as they have been brought to saving faith in Christ. And this most basic privilege that we have of children of God is simply that we are kept from destruction. Again, people today want to change the gospel, and there's something about life enhancement. You define sin as sin causes problems between us. My relationships aren't as nice as they could be because of sin. That's true, by the way. My job isn't as fulfilled as it could be because of my sin. Or, or all, the, all those things are true. But they're so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, the Bible itself barely mentions them when it speaks of what we're saved from barely mentions them at all because in the grand scheme it's hardly worth mentioning in the grand scheme we are saved from the wrath of God when we put our faith in Christ that's what we're being saved from and so the great effect of having this seal the great effect of being a Christian is simply that you are saved from the wrath to come and here we see that in perfect reality that these angels are specifically given the warrant and the orders, you may not touch anyone who has this seal of God on them. Well, that's just like the Passover, isn't it? Again, it seems quite similar, doesn't it? All these plagues sort of look like what's going on in Exodus, and also what finally happens is also like in Exodus. There's the Passover. Those who are in a household where it's been marked out by the blood on the threshold the blood of a lamb who is slain, an innocent lamb slain on that behalf. Those who had faith to receive the word of God are saved. And the destroying angel has no power over those households and they're saved. Well, likewise it is. Those who put their faith in Christ 
this judgment is not going to reach them. But, B, notice how terrible the judgment is um, in this, what we find in Revelation 9, 4 to 6. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now, in my deployments in the Middle East, I've, I've seen scorpions. Um, I've not personally, thankfully, experienced a scorpion bite, but I have heard those who have, and it seems to be a very terrible thing indeed, a great intense pain. And this goes on and on and on for them. It's not a momentary thing. And people speak very sometimes offhanded about a fate worse than death, and they're just kind of joking. The real thing is that there, there is something worse. There is a fate that is worse than death. And that's to continue on living in their such torment. Now, again, I'm, I'm making these things patent. I'm, I'm bringing them out because that's what's in the text. And the point of this today is a warning. Now, as we're, we're going on and we're looking at the next point, I think it'll, it'll be clear that perhaps by the time these things are actually happening, it's already too late for those who have not repented yet to do so. None of them actually do. So whether it's theoretically impossible or whether it's just practically impossible because of their own hardness of heart, none of them actually do repent. That's not the case today. The future is written down for us. We know what's happening. The day of salvation is yet today. And so I remind us of how terrible that torment will be. Not out of any sort of particular glory in it itself, but that it might have its function to warn us. Now, we see that this is C, just five months. I'm not sure how literal that is. If, like so many other numbers in Revelation, it could well be typological for something else. But we can be pretty sure that this is of a limited duration. The source, you see, the ultimate source of these things, it's as if hell has spilled out on earth just a little while. Just a little bit of hell has spilled out for a little bit. And what that's pointing to then is what is permanent and what is coming thereafter. This is a little foretaste of limited duration, but it is pointing to what is everlasting that never comes to an end in hell. Well, if it was in this foretaste that men were seeking death and were not given, they wanted to die, but death fleed, uh, was fleeing from them, so it will be in hell. Men will seek to want to be extinguished. Some of you may have heard of that doctrine, the idea of conditional immortality or of annihilation. Well, only people who are actually going to heaven live forever. Um, those who are going to hell, thankfully, are just extinguished because it's too horrible to us to think that anyone would have to suffer forever and ever and ever in hell. Well, that's a nice thought. And if you want to go down that road, what you're saying is that you're more righteous than God himself. You're more holy than God himself. I'm not sure how that's possible. But know that you have no basis whatsoever in Scripture. Scripture makes it very clear. As we'll see in Revelation 14, you don't have to go far to see it. It's just a few chapters from now. Revelation 14.10, that they shall be all those who, uh, who don't worship Christ, but instead worship um, uh, the Antichrist who shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. How long? Was it five months? No. 
The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image, whoever received the mark of his name. And we know that this is, of course, all those. You either receive the seal of God or you receive the mark of the beast, not physically but spiritually. And it goes on forever and ever. Well, inasmuch as men want to avoid physical death and seemingly they'll do anything to avoid it, the links that people do to preserve their life is great indeed, and rightly so, on the whole. On the whole, rightly so. But much more so should be your, physical, your, your spiritual life because there is a fate worse than death. And that is what a, a, a lies in, in wait for unrepentant sinners. So they were seeking death and not finding it. And third, stranger still, they did not repent. So we see the conclusion of this chapter in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Notice, first of all, in this section, as we're thinking about this amazing idea that they did not repent, notice the connection between idolatry and demons. It's spoken of in one breath, with no no break in between it, and it would seem to me that there's a connection here. Well, that connection is made clear in another part of Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 10.20, where it says this, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, speaking of idols, because this is all about pagan idolatry in First Corinthians. The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Now, again, I don't think people necessarily understand that. That idolatry is not something neutral. It's not something that would just happen to be set in place entirely by human beings. Of course, human beings end up making these things. Of course, they set up these idolatrous situations, which need not just include little statuettes. But it's all the sort of things that take the place of God that we can make into idols. But we don't, if we're making these idols, if our hearts are indeed idol factories, it's not a factory that works on its own. There's a boss for that factory. And the boss is demonic. These things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And so here in in Revelation, we need to remember that idolatry has its source in hell. That these things work together. Idolatry and the worship of demons. Now that brings us back to the problem of the seven churches in the beginning. Yes, most of these churches were experiencing Uh, persecution but some of those churches were so compromised that they weren't and these ones had made their peace as it were with the pagan idolatry around them and if it required just a little bit of off-handed offering of incense to a particular idol that was okay with them they were willing to play along but what we're reminded here is that demons are behind all these things and that compromise, involvement with the pagan situation, the world situation, which inevitably involves idolatry, also involves worshiping these demons.
Now also B, notice that it's the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. And that reminds us of Daniel chapter 5. Um, we went to the Northumbria Christian Union, and that was the passage assigned to me was Daniel chapter 5. And it's funny how these, these things are connected in Scripture. It's such a beautiful, perfect whole. It, no, no one man could have possibly have planned out Scripture. It's, you know, over a millennia. And all these different human writers who are used to bring it. And this perfect bringing together both of Exodus and of Daniel chapter 5. Because the great feature of Daniel chapter 5 is, first of all, idols. Speaking of the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. It's the very words. But also of a, and, and also of a certain doom. Okay, so there's idols. There's a certain doom for those who are worshiping them. And yet a lack of repentance. And that's what it says. Daniel is speaking to this King Belshazzar, but you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you know all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. The God who holds your very breath in his hand, you have not glorified him. You have dishonored him. And you've turned to these false things. You know what happens to Belshazzar? Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. That very night. Again, whether repentance was either theoretically or just practically impossible for him, the doom is proclaimed. It's written on the wall. And this very night, his soul was required of him. Well, as we consider this nature of idolatry, also in verse 30, it's a reminder of the nature of idolatry. It says, these things which can neither see nor hear nor walk. What does that mean spiritually? We've already talked about darkness and what darkness does spiritually. Well, here's what idol worship does. It makes you like them. It makes you like them. These idols can't see and they can't speak. They have no mouths. They cannot hear. They cannot see. They cannot smell. And you... If you worship an idol, if you become involved in idolatry, will become just like that. It blinds, it deafens, it anesthetizes spiritually. You know, if you think of what is necessary in medicine, there's anesthesia. And it is to make sure that people aren't feeling pain because there's this necessary um, operation that that is, is going to happen and would ordinarily cause great pain if it was done to someone who is conscious. So all of your nerves have to be deadened. You have to be brought out of, normally, out of a state of consciousness in order for this to happen. Well, what the Bible is declaring is that this is happening to you if you're worshiping an idol. Again, we're not just talking about Hinduism. We're not just talking about physical little statues. We're talking about acting like something is God when it's not trying to get your pleasure, trying to get your self-worth, your meaning from something that is not God. And you will be blinded. You will be deafened spiritually. And here's, I think, the connection between idolatry and why it is they don't repent. 
is because they have been so long involved in this idolatry that they are completely deaf and blind and unfeeling when these warnings come upon them. You know, the great value of pain is that it warns us about something. The great value of hearing these warnings of judgment is that it should wake you up. It should get you to repent. But the great problem of idolatry is that it blinds you to these things. And you simply do not notice. And they have no effect on you whatsoever. It's a terrible situation to be in. Well, finally, in this final part of this last point, notice, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And I would say that there's something of a surprise expressed in this. Because it seemingly makes no sense to, to John. Doesn't make sense to me either. You can know the contributing factors. You can see, well, there's darkness. They've embraced that darkness. They didn't want the light. God's taken it away. There's idolatry. They, want, they don't want to worship the true God. They want to worship these things that can't see and can't hear and can't, can't smell and all the rest of it. And now they're made just like it. So they're not seeing what they ought to see. They're not noticing the warnings that they, they ought to. But even still, even still, you're yet taken aback when you come to the end and you say, they still didn't repent. And you start to wonder what could possibly make them repent. When these things are coming upon them and they still cling on to their sins and they still want their murders and their thefts and their sexual morality, speaking of the whole second table of the law, not to mention the first. And that calls out for an explanation. You know what that explanation is? It's the depravity of man. And that's one of the um, doctrines of the Reformed faith, radical or total depravity. And it's not, again, it's not saying that we are as bad as we possibly could be because thankfully the restraining hand of God and common grace keeps us from being as bad as we could be. What it means is, though, that darkness is thoroughgoing. And there's this doctrine called the inability of man. You know, if we wanted to glorify man, you know what we'd do? We'd make a gospel whereby it's all about you and you can do everything and you're completely in control of everything. But if we wanted to say the truth and if we wanted to glorify God, we'd say, you know what? Fact is, there isn't much that you can do on your own. If God is not in it, if God is not helping you, there really isn't much you can do. It's called the, the inability of man. And... Perhaps the best way to describe it is not really to say the inability, but something like the, the uh, lack of attraction or the lack of desire to want to do these things. Because it's not being kept from doing it. It's not being kept from doing what you want to do. Look, everyone can pretty much do what they want to do. The worst kind of slavery... Slavery in body is bad. I'm not going to say that it's not. Being incarcerated, being kept in prison somewhere, that's bad. But you know what? You still have freedom in what you want to do. You can still think as you want to do. You can still, to some extent, speak as you want to do. You can even walk around in a certain pattern within your little cell. The deeper level of freedom is what you want to do. The deeper level of slavery is wanting to do things that are destructive and will bring about your end well that's the sort of inability that we have not that we can't do things that we want to do but the inability of, of what we want to do 
what we want to do is always, naturally speaking, wrong. And so, John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does that mean? You mean I can't walk over to you, Jesus? I can't say the words I believe in you? No, that's not it. The inability is, you don't want it. Naturally speaking, people don't want God. That's summed up in Heidelberg Catechism Question and Answer 5. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And that's not just making it up. It's based on scripture. Romans 8, 7 says, A carnal mind is enmity. That's, that's being an enemy against God. That's where we begin. And that is the only explanation that I can think of that would explain why these people, after all these things have come upon them, still do not repent. It's a terrible thing. Well, what can we say then in trying to apply these things to ourselves? What can we say? I guess I'd ask the question, sinner, what is going to get you to repent? What is it going to take to get you to repent? You know, sadly, on their own, the, the warnings of a preacher is not going to get, they're not going to get you to repent. Even hearing from one risen from the dead is not going to be enough. That's what we get in, in Luke in theory, this, this doctrine is explained to us in Luke. Even if one were to rise from the dead, Luke sixteen twenty seven, this man who is already in hell, suffering this, this fate worse than death, he says, I beg you, send someone to my father's house where I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Two things from that. One is the great power of the word of God. Your salvation the possibility of salvation rests in hearing the word of God. Moses and the prophets. It's a way of saying all of scripture. The word of God is the only thing that's going to make a difference. But if that's refused, too, we have to see that nothing, absolutely nothing, including the one right, if it, someone had come from the dead, someone had come straight from hell, who's already there and says, Please repent. If you were screaming out to you and saying, do anything you can to avoid coming here. And he were to go in great and terrible detail as to how terrible things are in hell and how you should do absolutely anything to avoid it, it wouldn't change it. You still wouldn't repent. If you will not hear the word of Scripture, if you will not hear the word of God, nothing will be enough for you. Now that's the case, theoretically, that's the case in actuality because someone did actually come from the dead. He wasn't in hell, but he did. He, he was risen from the grave. John twelve nine, and Lazarus, a great man of the Jews, knew that he was there, speaking of Jesus, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Well, here's someone raised from the dead. Surely then. They're all going to come to faith, right? Surely then they're going to repent of their unbelief and their sins. And surely they're going to believe in Jesus now. But do you know what it says? But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. 
these chief priests hardened in their sin and their rebellion rather than being changed by it at all rather than repenting they want to ironically kill this man a lot of good that would do putting to death a man it's already been demonstrated that Jesus can bring him back from the dead well then we could also say the very thing with Jesus Jesus rose from the grave you know the remarkable thing is tell me if I'm wrong but I don't notice that Jesus not only did Jesus not he wasn't able to convince those who had rejected him and put him to death but as far as I can tell he didn't try he did not even try There was no evangelism involved. Yes, of course, speaking to those who were already his disciples, those who already had hoped in him, he corrects their false opinions and he teaches them. But we don't have any evidence whatsoever that he ever came to anyone who had rejected him previously and said a word to them. And what do we make of that? Well, when things are already patently clear... When the things that are prophesied turn into sight, things that are actually happening, then it's already, in that sense, too late. Jesus didn't engage in evangelism after his resurrection. And maybe it's the case as well, that when these things are already patently coming to to, to pass, these things long prophesied, they're already being poured out for whatever amount of time there, there remains until the end, whether practically, theoretically, or however we want to put it, it's already too late to repent. So know this. That when these things are already coming to pass, when the, the matter is no longer in doubt whatsoever, the day of salvation is over, when all those who are elect have been sealed... Do not think in your mind that you have then that one last chance to repent. That is by no means certain. In all likelihood it will be too late then. And certainly after you're gone, after you've left this life, there is no second chance whatsoever. So what do we say to that? If if we say what on earth is going to get you to repent? We say that none of these things, someone raising from the dead, no, that's not going to help you. Actually seeing these things happen, that's not going to help you. The one thing that's going to help you is the word of God. Well, if that's the case, and I say be saved from this perverse generation. That's the message of the Apostle Peter as he's speaking to people. In Acts 2, he says, when the question comes, they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted to them, exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now that's the message I preach to you this morning. Be saved from this perverse generation. This generation that is driving off the cliff as fast as they can, blinding themselves by all their idolatry and their embrace of darkness in every kind, Be saved from this perverse generation. Hear the word of the gospel that is being preached and believe it. Be saved. Now, I'm reminded of the situation of the ark. You remember that there is this great symbol of the fact that there is going to be judgment 
The last time the Lord destroyed the earth, he destroyed it by water. The earth was wicked, and a few were going to be saved, and all they had to do was believe what God had said. And uh, there was this construction of the ark. There was one visible element of it. Of course, you can't, uh, the, the thing hadn't happened yet. It's possible it hadn't even rained yet. So the idea of this great worldwide flood was beyond anyone's imagination. But the word of God had come. But there was one visible symbol of it, and that was this great, huge, big ark. It was under construction. And people could see it. First, it was just a preparation for it. And then maybe the keel was laid out. And then they'd made the sort of bone structure of it. And they were putting on the cladding. And they were... You know, and then finally they've got the superstructure on it, and 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 uh, Noah and his sons are putting the, they're pitching it, outside and inside. And you know what that's saying is that day by day the end is coming closer. This means of salvation, and now, and and the the uh, the the parallel, of course, is with the church. The church is going on towards completion. The ark is being constructed. And the question is whether you'll see these things and recognize the day of salvation is at least one more day, it's today, and that you'll get on board. That ark is being prepared right now. And what Luke 13 says is this Lord, are there few who are saved? Is a question. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you're from. And what is that saying? You remember that when they got into the ark, the door was closed, not by them, but by the Lord himself, shut them in, and that was it. Even if they wanted to at this point, when it was finally all patently clear, and the end had come, and that all that prophesied was true, it was already too late. Likewise, the Lord says, when this happens, many will say, Lord, Lord, open, and he won't open. Well, if the, the word, those who have not yet put their faith in Christ is to, to repent and believe the gospel and be saved, that's all it takes. All you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ lived his perfect life and and died that sacrificial death and rose the third day on the behalf of those who put their their faith in him, where does that leave the Christian? Well, I think it leaves us in two places. We we ought to repent from idolatry. We, We need to repent from idolatry because we are idolatrous. You can define idolatry in many ways, but I would say it's any physical, spiritual, psychological need that you try to fulfill by anything that's not God. That's idolatry. And you can, ima- you can know that any need that is out there, any normal, natural appetite, any need that you would have, it's not going to have just one, but dozens of idolatrous substitutes for the real thing. Dozens of idolatrous substitutes for that which God provides for his children. And the temptation will forever be to use one of those things instead of the good things that God has given for God's glory. And that hook is going to be that it will fulfill this need or this want. And the requirement is going to seem low at first. All you have to do is serve the idol a little bit. But remember, 
serving the idol, we become like it. We start to lose our spiritual perception. We start to lose our sensitivity to these things. We go deeper and deeper into this darkness. Let's repent from our idolatry. Remember that God is a giver of every good gift. And he knows what is best for us, both in the end and in the method and everything in between. God gives us good gifts, and let's stick to those things. And the final application is we ought to be watchful in prayer. You know, what is the point of all these things for us? Well, it says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Revelation 3, we've already seen it. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. Or Revelation 16, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest you walk naked and they see his shame. Be watchful. The end is coming. It is not situation normal. The end is coming. We need to be watchful in prayer for one another and watchful in prayer for ourselves. Let's pray. Great God, how we understand and see our own blindness, how we, we, we recognize our own idolatry and sin. And Lord, truly we desire to repent. Lord, we know that you do not turn away those who call out to you, those who say, Lord, be merciful on me, a sinner. And Lord, those who cry out to Christ for salvation will not be turned away. But Lord, that very desire, that very faith is something that you must give, and we pray that you would. Lord, we see that those who shake their fist at you will ultimately be brought down in the most terrible way. And the end most certainly is coming. And Lord, today is the day of salvation. We know that you can glorify yourself greatly by bringing lost sinners to you, and we pray that you would. And moreover, we pray that those you are already your children would turn away from every aspect of darkness as we consider just how bizarre and strange to want to be going after idols that we know their origin is in hell itself, that in serving them we're serving demons and not the living God, and how it brings great darkness and blindness to us. Lord, help us to repent. Rather, Lord, help us to be watchful in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.